Chapter One of Pitching in a Pinch by Christy Mathewson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One The Most Dangerous Batters I Have Met. I've often been asked to which batters I have found it hardest to pitch. It's the general impression among baseball fans that Joseph Faversham Tinker, the shortstop of the Chicago Cubs, is the worst man that I have to face in the National League. Few realize that during his first two years in the big show, Joe Tinker looked like a cripple at the plate when I was pitching. His groove was a slow curve over the outside corner, and I fed him slow curves over that very outside corner with great regularity. Then suddenly, overnight, he became, from my point of view, the most dangerous batter in the league. Tinker is a clever ball player, and one day I struck him out three times in succession with low curves over the outside corner. Instead of getting disgusted with himself, he began to think and reason. He knew that I was feeding him that low curve over the outside corner, and he started to look for an antidote. He had always taken a short, choppy swing at the ball. When he went to the clubhouse after the game in which he struck out three times, he was very quiet, so I have been told. He was just putting on his last sock when he clapped his hand to his leg and exclaimed, I've got it. Got what? asked Johnny Evers, who happened to be sitting next to Tinker. Got the way to hit Matty, who had me looking as if I came from the home for the blind out there today, answered Joe. I should say he did, replied Evers but if you've found a way to hit him, why, I'm from away out in Missouri near the Ozark Mountains. Wait till he pitches again, said Tinker, by way of conclusion, as he took his diamond ring from the trainer and left the clubhouse. It was a four-game series in Chicago, and I had struck Tinker out three times in the first contest. McGraw decided that I should pitch the last game as well. Two men were on the bases and two were out when Tinker came to the bat for the first time in this battle and the outfielders moved in closer for him, as he had always been what is known as a chop hitter. I immediately noticed something different about his style as he set himself at the plate, and then it struck me that he was standing back in the box and had a long bat. Before this, he had always choked his bat short and stood up close. Now I observed that he had his stick way down by the handle. Bresnahan was catching, and he signaled for the regular prescription for Tinker. With a lot of confidence I handed him that old low curve. He evidently expected it, for he stepped almost across the plate, and with that long bat drove the ball to right field for two bases over the head of George Brown, who was playing close up to the infield, scoring both runs and eventually winning the game. "'I've got your number now, Matty,' he shouted at me as he drew up at second base. I admit that he has had it quite frequently since he switched his batting style. Now the outfielders move back when Tinker comes to the plate, for if he connects, he hits him far with that long bat. Ever since the day he adopted the pole, he has been a thorn in my side and has broken up many a game. That old low curve is his favorite now, and he reaches for it with the same cordiality as is displayed by an actor in reaching for his pay envelope. The only thing to do is to keep them close and try to outguess him, but Tinker is a hard man to beat at the game of wits. Many a heady hitter in the big league could give the signs to the opposing pitcher, for he realizes what his weakness is and knows that a twirler is going to pitch at it. But try as hard as he will, he cannot often cover up his groove as Tinker did, and he continues to be easy for the twirler who can put the ball where he wants it. Fred Clark of Pittsburgh 
has always been a hard man for me to fool on account of his batting form. A hitter of his type cannot be deceived by a change of pace, because he stands up close to the plate, chokes his bat short, and swings left-handed. When a pitcher cannot deceive a man with a change of pace, he has to depend on curves. Let me digress briefly to explain why a change of pace will not make the ball miss Clark's bat. He is naturally a left-field hitter and likes the ball on the outside corner of the plate. That means he swings at the ball late and makes most of his drives to left field. How is a batter fooled by a change of pace? A pitcher gives him a speedy one and then piles a slow one right on top of it with the same motion. The batter naturally thinks it's another fastball and swings too soon, that is, before the ball gets to him. But when a man like Clark is at the bat, and a pitcher tries to work a change of pace, what is the result? He naturally swings late and so hits a fastball to left field. Then, as the slow one comes up to the plate, he strikes at it, granted he is deceived by it, timing his swing as he would at a fastball. If it had been a fastball, as he thought, he would have hit it to left field, being naturally a late swinger. But on a slow one, he swings clear around and pulls it to right field twice as hard as he would have hit it to left field, because he's obtained that much more drive in the longer swing. Therefore, it's a rule in the profession that no left-handed batter who hits late can be deceived by a change of pace. Rube Ellis, a left-handed hitter of the St. Louis club, entered the league and heard complimentary stories about my pitching. Ellis came up to bat the first day that I pitched against him, wondering if he would get even a foul. He was new to me, and I was looking for his groove. I gave him one over the outside corner, and he jabbed it to left field. The next time I thought to work the change of pace, and, swinging late, he hauled the ball around to right field, and it nearly tore Fred Tenney's head off en route over first base. Five hits out of five times at bat he made off me that day, and when he went to the clubhouse, he remarked to his teammates in this wise. So that is the guy who's been burning up this league, huh? We've got better than him in the coast circuit. He just got the Indian sign on you, that's all. I did a little thinking about Ellis's hitting. He used a long bat and held it down near the end and pulled him. He was naturally a left-field hitter and therefore swung late at the ball. I concluded that fast ones inside would do more for Mr. Ellis, and the next time we met he got just those. He has been getting them ever since, and now, when he makes a hit off me, he holds a celebration. Hans Wagner of Pittsburgh has always been a hard man for me, but in that I have had nothing on a lot of other pitchers. He takes a long bat, stands well back from the plate, and steps into the ball, polling it. He is what is known in baseball as a free swinger, and there are not many free swingers these days. That is what ailed the Giants batting during the World Series in 1911. They all attempted to become free swingers overnight, and were trying to knock the ball out of the lot instead of chopping it. In the history of baseball, there have not been more than 15 or 20 free swingers altogether, and they are the real natural hitters of the game, the men with eyes enough and accurate enough to take a long wallop at the ball. Dan Brothers was one, and so was Cap Anson. Sherwood McGee and Hans Wagner are contemporary free swingers. Men of this type wield a heavy bat as if it were a toothpick, and step back and forth in the box, hitting the ball on any end of the plate. Sometimes it is almost impossible to pass a man of this sport purposely, for a little carelessness in getting the ball too close to the plate may result in his stepping up and hitting it a mile. 
pitchers have been searching for Wagner's groove for years, and if any one of them has located it, he has his discovery copyrighted, for I never heard of it. Only one pitcher that I can recall always had it on Wagner, and that man was Arthur Raymond, sometimes called Bugs. He seemed to upset the German by his careless manner in the box and by his kidding tactics. I have seen him make Wagner go after bad balls, a thing that hands seldom can be induced to do by other twirlers. I remember well the first time I pitched against Wagner. Jack Warner was catching, and I, young and new in the league, had spent a lot of time with him, learning the weaknesses of the batters and being coached as to how to treat them. Wagner loomed up at the bat in a pinch, and I could not remember what Warner had said about his flaw. I walked out of the box to confer with the catcher. "'What's his groove, Jack?' I asked him. "'A base on balls,' replied Warner, without cracking a smile. "'That's always been Wagner's groove. "'There used to be a player on the Boston team named Claude Ritchie, "'who had it on me, for some reason or other. "'He was a left-handed hitter and naturally drove the ball to left field, "'so that I could not fool him with a change of pace. "'He was always able to outguess me in a pinch "'and seemed to know by intuition what was coming.' There has been for a long time an ardent follower of the Giants named Mrs. Wilson, who raves wildly at a game, and is broken-hearted when the team loses. The Giants were playing in Boston one day, and needed the game very badly. It was back in 1905, at the time the club could cinch the pennant by winning one contest, and the flag-assuring game is the hardest one to win. Two men got on the bases in the ninth inning with the score tied and no one out. The crowd was stamping its feet and hooting madly, trying to rattle me. I heard Mrs. Wilson shrill loudly above the noise, "'Stick with them, Matty!' Ritchie came up to bat, and I passed him purposely, trying to get him to strike at a bad ball. I wouldn't take a chance on letting him hit a good one. Mrs. Wilson thought I was losing my control, and, unable to stand it any longer, she got up and walked out of the grounds. Then I fanned the next two batters, and the last man hit a roller to Devlin and was thrown out at first base. I was told afterwards that Mrs. Wilson stood outside the ground, waiting to hear the crowd cheer, which would have told her it was all over. She lingered at the gate until the fourteenth inning, fearing to return because she expected to see us routed. At last she heard a groan from the home crowd when we won in the fourteenth. Still, she would not believe that I had weathered the storm and won the game that gave the Giants a pennant, but waited to be assured by some of the spectators leaving the grounds before she came around to congratulate us. All batters who are good waiters and will not hit a bad ball are hard to deceive, because it means a twirler has to lay the ball over, and then the hitter always has the better chance. A pitcher will try to get a man to hit at a bad ball before he will put it near the plate. Many persons have asked me why I do not use my fade-away oftener when it is so effective, and the only answer is that every time I throw the fade-away, it takes so much out of my arm. It's a very hard ball to deliver. Pitching it ten or twelve times in a game kills my arm, so I save it for the pinches. Many fans do not know what this ball really is. It is a slow curve pitched with the motion of a fast ball, but most curve balls break away from a right-handed batter a little. The fadeaway breaks toward him. Baker of the Athletics is one of the most dangerous hitters I have ever faced, and we were not warned to look out for him before the 1911 World Series, either. Certain friends of the Giants gave us some inside information on the Athletics hitters. 
Among others, the Cubs supplied us with good tips, but no one spread the Baker alarm. I was told to watch out for Collins as a dangerous man, one who was likely to break up a game any time with a long drive. I consider Baker one of the hardest, cleanest hitters I have ever faced, and he drives the ball on a line to any field. The fielders cannot play for him. He did not show up well in the first game of the World Series because the Athletics thought they were getting our signs, and we crossed Baker with two men on the bases in the third inning. He lost a chance to be a hero right there. The roughest deal that I got from Baker in the 1911 series was in the third game, which was the second in New York. We had made one run and the ninth inning rolled around with the Giants still leading one to nothing. The first man at the bat grounded out and then Baker came up. I realized by this time that he was a hard proposition, but figured that he could not hit a low curve over the outside corner, as he is naturally a right field hitter. I got one ball and one strike on him, and then delivered a ball that was aimed to be a low curve over the outside corner. Baker refused to swing at it, and Brennan, the umpire, called it a ball. I thought that it caught the outside corner of the plate, and that Brennan missed the strike. It put me in the hole with the count two balls and one strike, and I had to lay the next one over very near the middle to keep the count from being three and one. I pitched a curveball that was meant for the outside corner, but cut the plate better than I intended. Baker stepped up into it and smashed it into the grand slam in right field for a home run, and there is the history of that famous wallop. This tied the score. A pitcher has two types of batters to face. One is the man who is always thinking and guessing and waiting, trying to get the pitcher in the hole. Evers of the Cubs is that sort. They tell me that Ty Cobb of Detroit is the most highly developed of this type of hitter. I have never seen him play. Then the other kind is the natural slugger, who does not wait for anything and who could not outguess a pitcher if he did. The brainy man is the harder for a pitcher to face because he is a constant source of worry. There are two ways of fooling a batter. One is literally to mix him up, and the other is to keep feeding him the same sort of a ball, but to induce him to think that something else is coming. When a brainy man is at the bat, he is always trying to figure out what to expect. If he knows, then his chances of getting a hit are greatly increased. For instance, if a batter has two balls and two strikes on him, he naturally concludes that the pitcher will throw him a curve ball, and prepares for it. Big league ball players recognize only two kinds of pitched balls, the curve and the straight one. When a catcher in the big league signals for a curve ball, he means a drop, and after handling a certain pitcher for a time, he gets to know just how much the ball is going to curve. That is why the one catcher receives for the same pitcher so regularly, because they get to work together harmoniously. Chief Myers, the big Indian catcher on the Giants, understands my style so well that in some games he hardly has to give a sign. But oddly enough, he could never catch Raymond because he did not like to handle the spitball, a hard delivery to receive, and Raymond and he could not get along together as a battery. They would cross each other. But Arthur Wilson caught Raymond almost perfectly. This explains the loss of effectiveness of many pitchers when a certain catcher is laid up or out of the game. Cy Seymour, formerly the outfielder of the Giants, was one of the hardest batters I ever had to pitch against when he was with the Cincinnati club and going at the top of his stride. He liked a curveball, and could hit it hard and far, and was always waiting for it. He was very clever at outguessing a pitcher and being able to conclude what was coming. 
For a long time, whenever I pitched against him, I had mixed him up, literally, handing him first a fastball and then a slow curve and so on, trying to fool him in this way. But one day we were playing in Cincinnati, and I decided to keep delivering the same kind of a ball, that old fast one around his neck, and to try to induce him to believe that a curve was coming. I pitched him nothing but fast ones that day, and he was always waiting for a curve. The result was that I had him in the hole all the time, and I struck him out three times. He has never gotten over it. Only recently I saw Seymour, and he said, Matty, you are the only man that ever struck me out three times in the same game. He soon guessed, however, that I was not really mixing them up, and then I had to switch my style again for him. Some pitchers talk to batters a great deal, hoping to get their minds off the game in this way, and thus be able to sneak strikes over. But I find that talking to a batter disconcerts me almost as much as it does him, and I seldom do it. Repartee is not my line, anyway. Bender talked to the giant players all through that first game in the 1911 World Series, the one in which he wore the smile, probably because he was a pitcher old in the game and several of the younger men on the New York team acted as if they were nervous. Snodgrass and the Indian kept up a running fire of small talk every time that the giant center fielder came to the plate. Snodgrass got hit by pitched balls twice, and this seemed to worry Bender. When the New York center fielder came to the bat in the eighth inning, the Indian showed his even teeth in the chronic grin and greeted Snodgrass in this way. Look out, Freddy, you don't get hit this time. Then Bender wound up, and with all his speed, drove the ball straight at Snodgrass's head, and Bender had more speed in that first game than I ever saw him use before. Snodgrass dodged, and the ball drove into Thomas's glove. This pitching the first ball at the head of a batter is an old trick of pitchers when they think a batter intends to get hit purposely or that he is crowding the plate. If you can't push him over better than that, retorted Snodgrass, I won't need to get hit. Let's see your fast one now. Try this one, suggested Bender, as he pitched another fast one that cut the heart of the plate. Snodgrass swung and hit nothing but the air. The old atmosphere was very much mauled by bats in that game anyway. You missed that one a mile, Freddy, chuckled the Indian with his grin. Snodgrass eventually struck out, and then Bender broke into a laugh. You ain't a batter, Freddy, exclaimed the Indian as he walked to the bench. You're a backstop. You can never get anywhere without being hit. If a pitcher is going to talk to a batter, he must size up his man. An irritable, nervous young player often will fall for the conversation, but most seasoned hitters will not answer back. The athletics, other than Bender, will not talk in a game. We tried to get after them in the first contest in 1911, and we could not get a rise out of one of them, except when Snodgrass spiked Baker, and I want to say right here that this much-discussed incident was accidental. Baker was blocking Snodgrass out, and the New York player had a perfect right to the baseline. Sherwood McGee of the Philadelphia National League team is one of the hardest batters that I ever had to face, because he has a great eye, and is of the type of free swingers who take a mad wallop at the ball, and are always liable to break up a game with a long drive. Just once I talked to him when he was at the bat, more because we were both worked up than for any other reason, and he came out second best. It was while the Giants were playing at American League Park in 1911, after the old polo grounds had burned. Welchance, who was the center fielder for the Phillies at the time, hit a slow one down the first baseline, and I ran over to field the ball. 
I picked it up as the runner arrived and had no time to straighten up to dodge him. So I stuck out my shoulder and he ran into it. There was no other way to make the play, but I guess it looked bad from the stand, because Welchance fell down. McGee came up to bat next, threw his bat on the ground, and started to call me names. He is bad when irritated, and tolerably easy to irritate, as shown by the way in which he knocked down Finnegan, the umpire, last season, because their ideas on a strike differed slightly. I replied on that occasion, but remembered to keep the ball away from the center of the plate. That is about all I did do, but he was more wrought up than I, and hit only a slow grounder to the infield. He was out by several feet. He took a wild slide at the bag, however, feet first, in what looked like an attempt to spike Merkel. We talked some more after that, but it has all been forgotten now. To be a successful pitcher in the big league, a man must have the head and the arm. When I first joined the Giants, I had what is known as the old roundhouse curve, which is no more than a big, slow outdrop. I had been fooling them in the minor leagues with it, and I was somewhat chagrined when George Davis, then the manager of the club, came to me and told me to forget the curve, as it would be of no use. It was then that I began to develop my drop ball. A pitcher must watch all the time for any little unconscious motion before he delivers the ball. If a base runner can guess just when he is going to pitch, he can get a much better start. Druk used to have a little motion with his foot just before he pitched, of which he himself was entirely unconscious, but the other clubs got on to it and stole bases on him wildly. McGraw has since broken him of it. The athletics say that I make a motion peculiar to the fadeaway. Some spitball pitchers announce when they are going to throw a moist one by looking at the ball as they dampen it. At other times, when they stall, they do not look at the ball. The big league batter is watching for all these little things, and if a pitcher is not careful, he will find a lot of men who are hard to pitch to. There are plenty anyway, and as a man grows older, this number increases season by season. End of chapter 1